Please be seated. Before we start with uh, this morning's lesson, a couple things I wanted to mention. First of all, a reminder that if you are in my family life group or the one that I meet with, not it's not mine, but the one that I meet with, uh, we will be meeting up here at the building combined with Mark's uh, group this afternoon. So don't go to my house. It'll be dark, won't be anybody there. So if you're in my group, come up here. Also, I know that many of you have asked about my mother, and it's kind of easier to kind of do a, a group thing than say the same thing 300 times, although I do appreciate everybody's concern. Uh, she's been in the hospital a little over a week and a half. She went in last Wednesday uh, with pneumonia and some heart problems, continuing to go into AFib and all that kind of stuff. Lots of you know know all about that. I thought we were going to get to come home maybe Friday, but early Friday morning, uh, she sat straight up in the bed and was complaining of chest pain and couldn't breathe, and her left lung had entirely collapsed. Uh, And so they had to do an emergency procedure to get a chest tube in, and so she's back in the ICU, still dealing with the AFib problem along with uh, this problem. I didn't know anything about really, you know, what a collapsed lung meant, what it was. My dad, in fact, my sister called us at 4.30 in the morning, said, you need to get up here. So we're on the way to the hospital, and my dad says, what do they do for a collapsed lung? I said, well, on MASH and Gray's Anatomy, <laughs> you know, they cut a hole right here and stick a tube through your ribs into your lung. <laughs> well, that's, that's what they did. Uh, and then the lung is supposed to reinflate and then reattach to the chest wall. I didn't know that, but that's what it has to do. And uh, right now, her lung will not attach to the chest wall. So that's the problem that we're having. So keep her in your prayers. Uh, this afternoon, when we get done here, I'm going to head back to, uh, to Hot Springs. Be with my sister, who has been there for the entire week and a half uh, at her bedside. And that's very uh, exhausting. Uh, as many of you, many of you know, you know, we use a, uh, a term sometimes where we say in certain professions, I don't know why it's just in certain professions, but we say that, you know, I had a calling and normally it's in professions that we can, we, we consider to be nobler, whatever that may be. Uh, we might hear a teacher say, you know, I was called. To be a teacher or a nurse. I was called to be a nurse or I was called to be a doctor. Those of you that worked out at the steel mill, I don't know that any of you ever said I was called to work at the open hearth. (laughs) You know, I don't know why we use that term only in, in, in regard to certain professions. But I'm here this morning to remind us, not tell us, because we already know it. You know it. That we have been called. God has called us. Beginning in Matthew chapter 4 and beginning in verse 18. We're going to look at the calling of Jesus' disciples. And then we're going to kind of apply what we see there to to how God has called us. But in Matthew chapter 4 beginning in verse 18 he says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter. And his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men at once. They left their nets and followed him. 
Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And then in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And then over in chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, we get the... We get the whole rundown of 12 that he is called to be his special disciples, to be apostles. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated as apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. We have been called, the Bible tells us, especially in the New Testament, several times. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 6, it says that we have been called to belong to Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, it says that we have been called into fellowship. Through Jesus Christ. You are a called people. I don't know whether we really understand that. Whether we really appreciate the significance of it. You know, have you ever gotten just a really special invitation? You know, an invitation that maybe you weren't expecting. An invitation to something that, that not many other people have an invitation to. I'm not talking about like the stuff that comes in the mail that's addressed to occupant or current resident. You know, some of you who are older than me, you may have gotten a letter in the mail that said you have been selected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know that that made you feel very special. But maybe you've been called or you've been invited to something that was really special. Folks, God has called us. He's called the whole world, but we are the ones who have accepted the call. We're the ones who have accepted the invitation. And he has called us for so many different reasons and to so many different purposes. And we ought to feel privileged. We ought to feel grateful. We ought to feel inspired because of the calling that we have received. And so this morning, I wanted to kind of just draw some points out of the calling of Jesus' disciples early on and our calling and see if we can make some connections. So first of all, we will notice that we have been called to become one in Christ. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. And to be honest with you, I couldn't remember whether it was on Sunday morning or Sunday night, but it doesn't matter. You're going to get it again whether you were here or not. But I want you to think about The group of 12 that Jesus chose to be his closest companions, to be his disciples, his apostles, to be the ones that he was going to send out into the communities to spread his name, to be the ones that were going to start the church, the ones who were going to be of preeminence, essentially, 
in the early part of the church. And I want us to just think about these 12 men that he chose. First of all, he chose two sets of brothers. Uh Uh-oh. I don't know about you. But the worst conflicts and the worst dynamics you can have in a group often involves family. And so you have Peter and Andrew. And what we find out later on is that the two of them are very opposite. Peter is the one who is always outspoken. Always, you know, Andrew seems to be the one that kind of takes the back seat. But there could have easily been the opportunity for conflict between Peter and Andrew. And then you got James and John. Later on, they're called sons of thunder. And they easily could have been in conflict with one another, a little sibling rivalry. We know that their mama liked to get involved in things. Because, you know, later on toward the end of Jesus' life, their mama says, Jesus, do me a favor. Can you have one of my sons sit on your right hand and one of my other sons sit on your left hand? Now, you don't think that might have caused a little problem with the other ten? Or you don't think that might have caused a little problem even between James and John themselves? Who's going to be on the right? Who's going to be on the left? But Jesus chose these two sets of brothers who could have easily been conflicted with each other. And then, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, you've got... Peter and Andrew, who were a fishing team, and you've got James and John, who were a fishing team, on the same lake, at the same time, and you don't think there was some competitiveness among them about where the best fishing hole they're first in the morning and all these different things. And when they came in, you don't think they were looking across at each other's boats, seeing who had caught the most during the day? The deadliest catch. Isn't that the name of that show I was trying to think of whenever I talked about this before? I've never seen it. But I've seen commercials for it. They get serious about, you know, predatory about their area. And all their lives, Peter and Andrew and James and John had probably grown up competing against one another. And now Jesus calls them together. We had that guy called Simon the Zealot. Ah, What does that mean? Well, you remember that in this time that the Romans were in charge of, you know, had conquered essentially the whole world. And they conquered Judea and Jerusalem and and Israel. And they were kind of in charge. Were the sons of liberty. That's what I was saying. Sons of liberty of their day in our in our terminology. They were the ones who hated the Romans. They were the ones who wanted the Israel independent independence and they didn't want they wouldn't speak greek if you you know paid them a million dollars they wouldn't speak greek or speak hebrew and aramaic they weren't going to name their kids anything that had a greek name they weren't going to name their you know they weren't going to do anything that had to do with rome or the roman government or greek culture or roman culture the sooner Levi, which worked government. In days of Nazism, he would have been known as a collaborator. He was collaborating with the Roman government. He was the Roman government. 
And so you have these two who are absolutely, we're not talking middle line Republican and middle line Democrat. We're talking far right and far left. And Jesus calls them together to be one of the 12. Something I just thought about just a minute ago. I'd never thought about this before. Matthew was the tax collector. He was the accountant. When it was time to put somebody in charge of the money bags, who would be the logical choice? Matthew. But instead, that job is given to Judas. I wonder if Matthew got his feelings hurt. I'm more qualified than he is. I know more about counting money and divvying out money than, than Judas does. I don't know what Judas's, you know occupation was before this. But, but Matthew certainly was qualified. And so you have all these different personalities. All these different backgrounds. All these opportunities for there to be division and strife. And there was some. But they all came together in Christ. A group of 12 men that under normal circumstances could have never gotten along. But because they were in Christ. They got along. They showed their unity. Because they had a common purpose, a common cause, a common personality that drew them all together. And we said that what they had in common was more important than the differences that they had. I remember, I think back in 1992, I believe is when it was, the original basketball dream team. You know, up until that point, the United States has always used college students, college kids, for their Olympic basketball team. And then, you know, we lost a couple and we decided it wasn't fair that the Russians and the Czechs and all these other people were using professionals and uh, we were using amateurs. So we're going to we're going to do our we're going to put our professionals out there our very best. And some people thought that'll never work. It'll never work. Because you're not going to be, you're not going to be able to get all these egos and all these personalities who for, you know, three years, nine months can't stand each other and are competitors against each other to come together for three months to play Olympic basketball. And you had Magic Johnson and Larry Bird who did not like each other. Played on opposite coasts. They, they, you know, didn't want anything to do. You had, you had the biggest ego in the world. You and and David Robinson. You had all these athletes, and yet they came together and literally, literally destroyed the entire competition. Why? Because at least for that brief period of time. They were able to put aside their personal differences, put aside their egos, put aside the competition that they normally had against each other to come together for a common goal and a common purpose. That's what God has done for us. He has called us to be one. 
He has called us to be united. In fact, it's so important that in John chapter 17, when Jesus is, is essentially closing out his life here on earth, he's in the upper room with his disciples and he's praying. And he prays for his disciples. And then he says, and Father, I don't pray for them only, but I pray for those that will come after them that will believe on me because of their word. That's you and me, right? That's you and me. That they may be one. Even as you and I, Father, are one. God's goal, God's plan for us, God's begging for us is that we are united that we are one and as we look around our room this morning or you go to our our directory and you begin to flip through the pages there are so many opportunities for us to be divided there are so many opportunities for us to 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 magnify the differences that we have We have people who come from different backgrounds, who grew up in different parts of the world, like the Northeast, you know. Uh, we, we, we We have people who grew up always going to church and always had a religious background. We have others who never went to church in their lives when they were children. Their parents never took them. They brought them here. We have business people. We have agriculture people. We have people with doctorate degrees, maybe. Do we have any doctorate degrees in here? I know we got master's degree. Oh, we do. There we go. See? I, smarter than I thought we were. We got people with doctorate degrees. We got people who may not even made it out of high school. I don't know. Some of you older people, I don't know. But barely, and, if, and I know we got some who just barely did. We got some who made it big and have lots of money. We have some who can barely go week to week and pay their bills. There's racial division or the possibility of racial division. All kinds of differences. And yet Jesus was able to take these 12 men and all their differences and bring them together and make them unified. That's what God calls us to do as well. We should put aside all the different social and racial, economical, political, business difference, any differences we have, we ought to put those aside. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. Now, we... we We'll get to that in a second. But, you know, first of all, we've got these 12 men. And there's so much opportunity for division. And then a little later on, the church is going to start. And for a while, things are rocking along just fine. Until one day, Peter has a vision. And that vision is all this unclean food coming down. And Peter's hungry. And the Lord says, kill it, Peter, eat it. Peter says, I'm not, oh, no, no. I'm a Jewish person. I don't eat that unclean food. Three times that happened. And then there was a knock at the door. And some people from the house of Cornelius, a Roman soldier, said, our master said to come get you because he had a vision. And Peter's like, ooh, he had a vision. I had a vision. 
Let's put two and two together. And so Cornelius is converted and then many Gentiles are converted. And now all of a sudden within the church, we have Jews and Gentiles who for their entire existence have hated each other. There's been animosity. There's been hatred. There's been jealousy. There's been tyranny. All these different things. And now all of a sudden they're in the church and they're to become one. And you know, they had some struggles in the beginning. But they accomplished it. Setting when in the church, in the same group of people, you had slaves and masters. At one little chapter letter to Philemon is all about that. What do we do? Now we're slaves and masters out there, but in here we're brothers and sisters. How does that, how does that work? Under normal circumstances and in any human fashion, it wouldn't. It couldn't. But in Christ, it did. And so that's why Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ. So it doesn't matter where we came from, doesn't matter what our background is, doesn't matter what our immediate situation is. In Christ, we are one. And he calls us to be that. Secondly, from the calling of his disciples, we see that God calls us to do extraordinary things. Do you think you can do extraordinary things? Or are you the kind that says, well, no, you know, that's for somebody else to do. I'm not the kind of person to do anything really extraordinary or do anything really great. If that's you, you're the kind of people God calls. Moses, although he grew up, In the household of Pharaoh. For 40 years he'd been just a lowly shepherd. Watching his daddy-in-law's sheep. And one day the bush is burning. And he goes to see what it is. And God says, Moses, I'm calling you to do something extraordinary. I'm calling you to go back to Egypt and to lead my people to the promised land. And Moses is like, sorry, the reception's not very good. I think you're cutting out. You must have a wrong number. Not me, I'm just a shepherd. Not me, I don't talk very well. I'm not the leader type. And God says, no. Maybe you're not, but I'm going to make you that type. I'm going to make you that type. And through Moses, a shepherd, God did extraordinary things. Gideon, he was kind of pretty king. You know, the Midianites were running into Israel and, you know, taking all their food and their grain and their crops and all this stuff. So he's hiding out. You know, trying to get his little grain trampled, you know, and, and so that the Midianites wouldn't find it. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord came to him and said, God is speaking to you, oh, mighty warrior. 
Gideon, mighty warrior. Not, not me. Not me. And God said, yeah, I'm going to use you to do extraordinary things. David, the runt of the family. You remember God tells Samuel to go to the house of Jesse and to anoint the new king. And so he does and, and, and Jesse's first oldest son comes and boy, he is big and strong and strapping and handsome and everything else. And Samuel says, whoo, that's got to be him. Let me get out the oil. And God says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Nope, not him. Okay, what about son number two? Son number two, whoo, well, it's got to be him. Nope. Goes through six of them. And, and Samuel says, you know, he's, you know, he's looking, waiting for God to say nothing. And so he said, you got any more, Jesse? You know, besides these six, you got any more? Well, yeah. The baby, the run of the family, he's out with the sheep. Can't be him, surely. Well, bring him on in. And God says, yep, that's the one who's going to be king. Remember that David at a very young age goes out and with a sling and a stone slays Goliath. Now, the difference between David and Moses and Gideon is David believed he could do what God was calling him to do. Moses and Gideon had to be convinced. In David's case, it was everybody else around him who didn't think he could do anything extraordinary. And he takes Goliath out with one throw of the stone. We may think that God has not called us to do anything extraordinary. But he often calls the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Now, you know, You may not go off to some mission field somewhere and baptize 10,000 people or, or that. You may not be able to do that. That may not be what God's calling you to do. But what about talking to your neighbor about Jesus Christ? What about being an influence on them and planting the seed? Is that not extraordinary? That's extraordinary. What about being a light to your school, to your classmates, to your, to your athletic teams? What about standing up and saying, you know, I'm not going to use that kind of language. I'm not going to get involved in those type activities when everybody else is. Is that not extraordinary? Absolutely. And people will take notice. And you'll have an impact on people's lives. So God calls us. Jesus is calling us to do extraordinary things. And thirdly, he calls us to total commitment. We've read those verses several times where it talks about, you know, unless, you know, you hate your father and mother and brother and sister and you don't put your hand to the plow and look back, you know, is not fit for the kingdom. And the one that said, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I first I want to go home and bury my father. And and Jesus said, you know, let the dead bury the dead and and all of these different things. And and the poor, you know, rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you you know, you're a smart guy. What's the what what what's the scripture say? 
Well, don't lie, cheat, steal, murder, do all those things. Jesus said, do those. He said, I have done those. I've I've kept those since I was a little boy. And Jesus said, okay, well, one little thing. Well, Jesus didn't say one little. One thing you lack. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the man went away sad because he had great wealth. You see, Jesus was able to look into his heart and know that even though he was a good person, even though he followed the law, even though he was a moral person, apparently, that he was never going to be a committed person because there was going to be that one thing that stood between him and God. Now, for us, for you, for me, it may not be money. It may be something else. But Jesus calls us to whatever it is that is coming between us and being fully, totally committed to God. We got to give that up. We got to give it up. You know, that whole series we did on Am I a Fan, Fan or Follower? You know, we see those times that Jesus called people to total commitment. I'd never looked at how Jesus dealt with people the way I did after doing that study. But, you know, the story of of the rich young ruler. If it had been me, or if it had been you, And this was such a good person. And Jesus said, there's one thing you lack. You got to give, sell everything you have, give the poor. And he starts to go away sad. There would have been something inside of me that would have stopped him. Hey, 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 young man, come back here. Okay. You're not ready to give everything, you know. How about if you make a sizable donation to the poor? We'll start there. And then we'll work on, you know. But Jesus, let him go. In John chapter 6, where Jesus does that teaching about the bread of life. And, and unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you know. And all those people were freaking out because they didn't understand what that meant. And it says that from that point on, many deserted Jesus. He didn't run after him. He didn't say, let me water down the commitment thing a little bit. He turned to the disciples and basically said, you know, if they want to go, let them go. Are you going to leave me too? He asked them. God wants us and calls us to total, absolute, 100% commitment. And he seems pretty clear, Jesus does, in his interaction with people in his ministry, that he will not take anything less. We maybe cannot have the strongest faith. We can fall and sin. He'll forgive that. But he wants us to be 100% totally committed. He calls us to that. 
He calls us to have that commitment in our personal lives. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, live a life worthy of the calling. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 11, I pray that God will count you worthy of his calling. 2 Peter 1 and verse 10, be eager to make your calling sure. God has called you this morning. And for most of you in here, you have accepted that call and that invitation. If you're here this morning, you haven't. He's calling you today. And you can't continue to put him on hold. You can't continue to ignore the call. Because there will come a time when he'll quit. Either when Jesus comes back or when it's too late. Maybe that you have accepted that call, but you realize you've not really been totally in, all in, as Jesus calls us to be. And there's some way we can help. Come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.